And uh, we continue uh, this morning on our sermon series in Kingdom Stories. So let's have God's Word open us up to Matthew, Matthew chapter 13, and we'll be reading from verse 44 to 46. Matthew 13, 44 to 46. And when you're there, I'll ask that you please rise for the reading of God's Word. Again, we're in Matthew chapter 13, beginning on verse 44. Now this is the word of the Lord. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, some time ago, I was having dinner with an older couple. Uh, this couple, they were in their 60s. Uh, they had raised beautiful children, uh, recently settled in Pennsylvania, after living in over 10 different countries. And from what I can tell, they had lived quite a full life. Now, they sat across from uh, my wife and I at the dinner table, and towards the beginning of the meal, uh, the wife, she looks at me and she suddenly asks, she says, Pastor Joe, are you happy? Uh, I was taken aback by this question. I wasn't quite sure what she meant or what she was trying to get at. I knew uh, that she was having a difficult time uh, settling into a new context, but it was just such weird timing, and I really didn't have a response for her. I couldn't remember the last time someone asked me a question that was so simple yet so acute. And all throughout the meal, I was trying to figure out, am I happy? The dinner was lovely. Uh, we became real vulnerable with each other. That question seemed to really open us up. We had let our guards down, and we were able to really converse honestly, sincerely. And towards the end, when the check came around, I really wanted to bless them. So I picked up the, the check, and I thanked them for their fellowship and their honesty. You know, I learned something that night, that when I get into my 60s, and I have the chance to share a meal with a young, vibrant, 30-year-old couple, I should start the conversation with, are you happy? I can probably get a free meal out of it. But it was one of those questions that, uh, again, was so simple, yet just so uh, acute, so profound. And it really opened us up to share, are you happy? Now, this is the question I'd like to ask you all this morning, because today's passage talks about happiness. It speaks of joy. You know, some of Jesus' parables are about judgment, some are about prayer, some are about discipleship, but this parable is about joy. So, two questions I want to ask as we look at this passage. First question, what is joy? And second, how can I experience joy? What is joy and how can I experience joy? First, 
What is joy? Uh, Today's passage tells a story about a man who stumbles upon a treasure that's hidden in a field. And the passage tells us that this man went to acquire this piece of land. And to acquire it, he sells everything that he has. He liquidates all of his assets. And he uses all the capital that he has to purchase this one piece of land. He becomes poor to gain this land. Now, the story tells us the manner in which he went about selling everything and buying this piece of land. What was his attitude? What was his demeanor? Did he do it in fear? Did he do it in doubt? Was it begrudgingly? Or was it in timidity? No. The passage tells us that when he went to sell everything and buy this one piece of land, the passage tells us he did it in joy. In joy. Now, friends, imagine, imagine selling everything that you have and putting all of your eggs in one basket. No matter how much conviction you might have, it's still a very, very scary prospect. This act goes against the grain of everything that we are taught to do with our possessions and our money. We're taught to de-risk and to diversify. But this individual is filled with so much conviction that when he executes this transaction, before he even executes this transaction, before he buys or he sells and he buys, he is filled with joy. You know what this passage teaches us about joy? It teaches us that joy is the result Joy is the outcome or the consequence of discovering something truly valuable. Joy is the result of finding something that is precious and of ultimate worth. In other words, it teaches us that joy is the outcome of discovery, but joy itself is not the object of discovery. You see, people who look for happiness will never find happiness. But when they find something of immeasurable worth and value, then happiness comes upon them. Happiness finds them. You know, I I know know, um, our forefathers said that every uh, human has the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And I think that phrase is often misunderstood, the pursuit of happiness. When our forefathers said, we have the right to pursue happiness, they weren't talking about some ethereal thing called happiness that we all have to pursue. They were actually talking about property. When they say, we have the right to happiness, they were talking about land, about possession. We have the right to property. And the forefathers thought that through the pursuit of happiness, or through the pursuit of land, that is how we can find joy. You see, what this passage is teaching us is that joy is something that we shouldn't look for, but it comes upon us when we find something that has ultimate worth and ultimate value. It's a lot like love, right? People who search for love 
they're not going to find love. Someone who says, I just want to fall in love, they're not going to discover love. It's only when you meet someone, you meet someone else whom you're willing to give yourself to, when you find someone whom you're willing to share everything with, that's when you fall in love. Love is the consequence of finding someone. C.S. Lewis says the same thing about friendship. He says it rather harshly. He's, uh, he's English, but this is what he says in The Four Loves. He says, that is why those pathetic people who simply want friends can never make any. The very condition of having friends is that we should want something else besides friends. Friendship must be about something, even if it were only an enthusiasm for dominoes or white mice. See, people who say, I just want friends, they can't make friends. Why? Because friendship has to be about something. People who say, I want to fall in love, can't actually find love because love is the outcome of finding a partner. So is the case with happiness. See, the man in the parable wasn't searching for joy, but when he found something that was worth giving everything for, when he found something that was worth giving all that he had, joy came upon him. Joy found him. Or consider the merchant. He wasn't looking for happiness. He was searching for fine pearls. And when he finds one of ultimate value, he sells everything. Why? Because he found that which would end his search His thirst for value and worth was quenched. He found satisfaction. See, this teaches us that joy comes with rest and contentment. Whereas Don Draper from Mad Men said, asking the question, what is happiness? It's a moment before you need more happiness. Joy is the feeling that you get When you finally find something that brings ultimate contentment, when there's perpetual satisfaction, when you can lay your head down to sleep at night and you have the assurance that what you have is invaluable, that it cannot be taken away, that nothing that happens throughout the night or the news that arrives in the morning would ever change what you have. Joy isn't something that you can search for and find. But joy is the result of finding, discovering, possessing ultimate worth and ultimate value. That's joy. So if that's joy, then naturally the next question is, how can I experience it? What can I discover? What can I possess? What can I attain that will quench my soul's thirst for ultimate satisfaction and infinite worth. For Jesus, his answer is simple. It's the kingdom of God. Throughout the Bible, see, as God talks about the kingdom, as he introduces to us what the kingdom of God is, the Bible makes plain what this kingdom is. The parable does it through metaphor, but throughout the Bible, it's plain language. What is this kingdom? Well, if we look at Psalm 145.13, this is how the kingdom is described. Your kingdom 
is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generation. Psalm 145. You know, the average age of empires, the average age of empires is about 250 years. Kingdoms last for about 250 years. Even the great U.S. of A. uh, has only been in prominence and power since World War II. The average age of empires is about 250 years. You know, we were, those of us, you know, who live here or who were born here and who were blessed to be a part of this country, we, we were born during the time, a very short window in time, where USA is in, really enjoying and reaping the benefits of, of power and prominence and wealth. Not just with empires and kingdoms, but Think about your own family, your line, your name, your family's legacy. How long do you think that lasts? You know, I remember someone asked me, you know, this question. They asked, do you know your grandmother's name? I said, yeah, grandma. (laughs) I don't know her name. We just call her grandma. Uh, Uncle grandma or grandpa or we just have these titles. I don't know their names. And he asked, do you think your grandchildren will know who you are? Do you think they'll know your name? And I said, maybe. Then how about your great-grandchildren? At what point do you think your legacy, your influence, who you are, will ultimately fade into the abyss? That's the reality. You know, we spend all of our lives trying to accumulate and possess and building up an inheritance to ultimately pass down But it goes to people who don't even know who we are, our names. But the kingdom, consider that, contrast that, all of our strivings with the kingdom, the kingdom of God that is ascribed as eternal. Or consider Romans 14, 17. This is how the kingdom is ascribed here. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. You know what this passage is saying? It's saying that kingdom satisfaction, the satisfaction that we get from the kingdom is not from food or drink. It's not from the outwardly, but it's of righteousness or justice, in other words, peace and joy. Just think back the past 18 months. What is it that this world was striving to get, was striving to see? What what is it that we were wrestling with for the past 18 months? Justice, peace, and joy. They seemed so far away. You see, this world tries to bring justice, peace, and joy by food and drink, by offering food and drink, by bringing about equality through food and drink. But the kingdom, according to Scripture, offers justice, peace, and joy directly. Or consider, finally, what it says in Hebrews 12, 28. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. The author here simply describes the kingdom as one that cannot be shaken. Nothing or no one can diminish its power, glory, its purpose, and its mission. You see, throughout Scripture, God promises 
that when we discover the kingdom of heaven, all of our striving, all of our pursuing for meaning, for worth, for significance will cease. Why? Because in the kingdom, we find our creator. In the kingdom, we find and discover who our creator God is. We discover our origins. We encounter our heavenly father. In the kingdom of God, we meet our perfect redeemer and mediator, Christ. We meet someone who finally understands everything about us, someone who's able to make a defense for us, and someone who's able to cover over all of our transgressions and our iniquities. We meet in the kingdom of God a perfect redeemer and a perfect mediator. In the kingdom, we receive an eternal inheritance. We don't need to continue our pursuit in trying to make a name for ourselves in this world because in the kingdom of God, we have already received a new name, a new identity as sons and daughters of the God Most High. See, according to Jesus in the parable here, the kingdom of God is what will bring ultimate joy. Now, if you find this to be questionable, I understand. Some of you might be thinking, yo, here, here we go, another classic bait and switch, right? You accentuate the desire for joy and then just sneak in through the back door this kingdom, this kingdom of God. If you're underwhelmed or even disappointed, that's understandable. You might be dealing with real concrete issues of identity, trying to find out who you are, You might be struggling to find real contentment in life. You might be wrestling with finding worth and value in your present circumstances. You might be thinking, if the world values me at minimum wage, how is this invisible kingdom going to provide me with any worth and value today? And your doubts are certainly understandable. But, you know, I want you to know that the text, today's passage, anticipates that. In the first parable, this treasure, yes, it is of immense value, but it's also hidden. It's not obvious. You know, in the passage, there isn't this massive race where everyone knows this treasure and they're all quickly going to the bank to sell off everything. They're not gathering in front of an auction to buy this land because they know, everyone knows It's of great worth and value. No, the man quietly, unassumingly, buys this obscure piece of land. Well, the second story. The kingdom, yes, is a fine pearl, but it's something that one has to look for. Again, it's not obvious. It's not conspicuous. See, the value and the worth of the kingdom of God is difficult to see. In fact, it's almost impossible to see. You and I cannot see how worth it the kingdom of God is. We can't until God opens up our eyes so that we can see the worth and the value of its king, Jesus the storyteller. Until we can finally see Christ for who he is and ultimately what he did for you and I, We cannot see this kingdom as 
being of any worth and value to us. You know, if you look at the second parable, um, there's a merchant. He's a rich wholesale dealer of fine pearls. And when he finds something of infinite value, the passage tells us he's willing to give up everything so that he can have this one fine pearl. You know, the second parable isn't just a story about how we discover the kingdom of God, but it's a story about how Jesus, the rich merchant, found us. When Jesus looked upon us, he saw that we were pearls of infinite value, not because we had it intrinsically, but because we were the objects of God's love. When Jesus saw that we were loved by the Father, he saw how valuable we were. And what does he do? He leaves everything. He forsakes everything. He gives up everything so that he can possess us. See, it's only when we first see Christ for who he is and what he has done, only when we realize that Christ first saw infinite value in us as the objects of God's affection, only then can we start to see that this kingdom of God is in fact a treasure. It is in fact worth giving up everything for. Um, You know, um, in uh, the city of Philadelphia, there is a uh, small art museum called the Barnes Foundation. It's a small museum started uh, by a person by the name of Albert Barnes. It's on uh, Ben Franklin Parkway, I believe. Uh, One of our congregants, in fact, told me about this place, uh, recommended it, and uh, went to visit it. But it's a beautiful, beautiful uh, art museum. But it's in this small, unassuming um, location. When you compare it to the Philadelphia Art Museum, it just seems like a small, uh, dinky little place. Even before the location at Ben Franklin Parkway, uh, it was in an even more modest location in this rundown house in Marion. Now, Albert Barnes, um, during the early 19, or the late 1800s, early 1900s, I uh, started to go over to, to France to purchase paintings. And this is before the time where Impressionist, Post-Impressionist, and modern art became uh, huge. And so he started going over, and he started to see worth and value in these Post-Impressionist paintings. And he started to bring over a lot of them. And he amassed over 900 paintings and just different objects of art. In fact, he has uh, 181 paintings uh, by Renoir, uh, 69 paintings by Cezanne, uh, 59 by Matisse. He has 46 Picassos, 7 Vincent van Goghs. And all of these paintings, what he has now, it's estimated to be worth about $25 billion. And it's it's just a private, personal collection. But the story goes that when Albert Barnes first started collecting these paintings, um, he held an exhibition, the first public exhibition, where he invited people to see these beautiful pieces of art. And when the exhibition opened up, people started to criticize him. Uh, One uh, news outlet wrote, 
come see uh, America's shrine for all the craziest art out there. They thought he had lost his mind, that he had bought junk. Now after, as time had passed on, people started to see worth and value in these paintings, these impressionist paintings that, was, that were able to reflect the light and the sun in, a, in, in this very surreal way. They started to pick up on post-impressionist paintings and modern paintings, and this is you know, even before the time of MoMA. And the world started to come around and see ultimately the value that, these art, that this art collection had. Friends, you and I, for you and I, the kingdom of God will never appear to be something that is valuable or worth it. When we look at the kingdom and hear of the kingdom, it will never appear to us as something that brings ultimate joy and satisfaction. We will never see its true value until we see the real value in the gospel. Until we see who Christ is and what he has done for us, that is when the scales on our eyes will fall down and we'll finally see how valuable this kingdom is. You know, a few chapters later, Jesus asks this very, this very short yet profound question. He says this, what shall a man give in return for his soul? What shall a man give in return for his soul? And for those of us who understand what Christ has done to ransom us, the answer is everything. Everything. I, I want to conclude by just uh, bringing a bit more clarity to what this, uh, these parables, what they teach. Because these parables, while they're simple, they're often misunderstood. Uh, first, um, three, just three misunderstandings I want to clear up. Um, First, this parable, uh, these parables, they're not about how we earn the kingdom, okay? It isn't about how we earn it. We have to sell our possessions and buy this kingdom. That is the way we earn it. That is not what this passage is teaching. In fact, rather, it's teaching how we can respond to the kingdom. It's teaching how we receive the kingdom. You see, the man didn't create the treasure. He didn't grow the treasure In other words, he didn't, um, you know, amass possessions and have it compound and grow. No, he didn't earn it. He didn't do anything to add worth or value to it. And if you look, the treasure was there before, and the man found it by what? By dumb luck. He stumbled upon it. You can say that the treasure found him. And the gospel, this story doesn't teach how we can earn the kingdom, but it teaches how we receive it. We receive it with faith, with repentance, with commitment. We receive it wholeheartedly. We receive it knowing and trusting its ultimate value. The second thing, uh, or the second misconception is this. Uh, this passage, this parable, is not about sacrifice. You know, often, you know, we, we look at this and we say, you know what, if I want to possess the kingdom, what do I have to do? What sacrifices do I have to make? The gospel talks a lot about sacrifice, but this passage isn't one of them. This isn't a story about sacrifice, but it's actually a story about a bargain. 
It's a story about a cheap find. Someone who was able to give everything that he had, very little, to gain and possess something of infinite worth and value. It's a, it's a bargain story of how this man came to possess endless riches. And finally, the third misconception is this. We think that this parable is teaching that, you know what, we need to give up everything, then we can find joy. But that's not what this passage teaches. It teaches that when we discover the gospel, when we discover the value and the worth of the kingdom, then we have joy. And in that joy, we respond accordingly. You see, you know, I, I thought about, you know, putting my, you know, I put myself in, in the shoes of this man. And I thought, this man with joy. So when he discovered the treasure, he had joy, and then he goes off and he responds. But I thought, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do that. I'm too skeptical. I would discover it. I would say, great, that's mine. I'm going to go after it. And then I would try to sell everything. But until the time, until that actually, that deed comes into my hand, until the title comes into my hand, until the papers are all signed and that land is handed over to me, I'm not going to be joyful. I'm going to be scared, doubtful, fearful. But this man, when he discovers the value of the kingdom, when he discovers what that land is worth, then in joy he goes ahead and he responds. Friends, for those of you searching for joy, this story isn't teaching us that, you know what, we need to first sell everything and then possess the kingdom of God and then joy will come upon us. No, that is not what this passage is teaching. It's teaching that when we discover just the worth of the gospel, just the worth of the kingdom, when we start to see what Christ has done for us, that is when with joy we can respond. This story is a story about a bargain, a sale. I know that all of us love sales. Would you respond accordingly? Join me in prayer at this time.